Why would Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and the very late night live version of Adam Collins. This is 2am Adam Collins. You've never had this Adam Collins potentially before. I just arrived back from the last T20 match in the series down in Southampton uh, on the long drive back, has made it back to London. I'm feeling bright and morning fresh and I will try to nurse you, Adam, through the next hour or so of the show. <laughs> good evening. Good evening. Good morning. Yes, I predictably made two wrong turns on the way back. Uh, for I am tired, but it's okay because uh, I am also prepared and that's more important than being alert. So hopefully <laughs> that will make for a good conversation. We have plenty to talk about. I know that because the T20 series finished tonight and it ended in, I think, a good way as far as those of us who love Mitch March, who, who was the player of the match in the final game, held his nerve at the end. It looks like the wheels might fall off again, but it was Marsh and Agar who perhaps just as importantly, uh, in a way, given they're trying to teach him how to play this number seven role. And it was Marsh who obviously scored more heavily than Agar. But as far as the longer term, how are they going to set this team up? They really want Agar to partner Zampa. And that he was there at the end and that he made runs on Sunday and that he took wickets each time. Really good catch today as well off his own bowling. I think that overall he, he'll be pretty happy with his output. Yeah, it looked like throughout the series that it was it was tough on Agar. He got targeted quite a bit when he was mm. bowling. There was a lot of questions around him at number seven England were dominant through the first couple of games. I, I didn't watch every ball of it because a lot of it was on between 3am and, and 6am, although I did see probably more of it than I anticipated um, during those <laughs> hours. But, but you watched all of it very closely. And the initial stages, you know, that the first couple of games, it felt like that 2018 one day tour when Australia went over there and, and England just had absolutely no problems at all knocking them over but I suppose in terms of the ODIs ahead as well it, it's good that Australia clawed back into it a bit and managed to get a consolation win uh, even with some personnel changes for England. Yeah and some personnel changes for Australia as well they, they won without Warner and Cummins who they rested and I thought what Finch said at the toss was fairly interesting that they know they're going from bubble to bubble to bubble to bubble really uh, I mean the, the schedule the Australian schedule is going to be released probably later in the week and we have a fairly decent idea now what it'll look like with one day as uh, followed by uh, the test matches against India followed by potentially a test against Afghanistan at the end but no matter what the configuration is and, and what cities they play in in all probability uh, they're going to be locked away in some version of a bubble which will mean that it's mentally taxing that's the message that's been received loud and clear from those who have been involved. I mean, Josh Butler took a, a day off today. I mean, it's his 30th birthday. I think that was lost in the coverage to an extent why he would want to be away, but he hasn't seen his family for, for 10 weeks because when he was out of the bubble, his family were away coincidentally. So I, I kind of understood what Finch was saying when he said, we've got senior players who are three format players. We're going to give them a chance to sort of not play when it's not essential. Uh, and that was what they saw today. But Hazelwood walks into the team, hadn't played a, 
a T20 international since that night when Coley somehow beat them, needing to go at 15 and over in that World T20 game in 2016. That was Josh Hazelwood's last T20 international. And he bowled superbly. Three overs in the power play, picked up Banton early. It was hard to get away. No real tricks about what he's doing, but if you bowl at his pace and as accurately as he does, uh, you know, with all the other variables that he brings to play, like his height and so on, uh, he's always going to be a handful. And then mm. um, Stark bowled the best that he bowled in the series today, which I don't think it's a coincidence that Stark with Hazelwood, they tend to bowl really nicely together. And then the, the other seamer, Kane Richardson, you, you fold him in and the three of them went at collectively 6.16 runs and over. They all took an important wicket. And I think that, you know, uh, alongside Cummins, you've got your four there, don't you? That, that'll, be the, that'll be the squad of four, which they want to have working towards the, the two World Cups in two years. We have to talk (laughs) in some detail about the Australian choke in the first game, one of the all-time chokes. Uh, What what was it they needed, 39 from 36 at the end with how many wickets left? Eight wickets in hand, was it? I think it was was, 39 from 38 at one stage as well because there was a couple of dots at the end of that over. But, yeah, it, it was... It was bizarre to be... I was on air for the last five overs, which from memory I picked up when Adil Rashid took his two wickets in and over. And, you know, I I listened back to bits of that the other day in in the TMS podcast. And my tone at the start is like, I mean, I'm kind of bemused by the whole thing. I'm like, oh, this is an interesting little thing and not even a twist. It's like, oh, oh, they've they've, they've (laughs) lost a couple of wickets. wickets. (laughs) And to go behind behind the curtain a bit, as we do uh, usually, uh, I had already written my match report for the Sydney Morning Herald. All I was going to do was fill in the gaps to simply note that Australia had won by nine wickets. Warner and Smith, the two men who had made it through to the finish line. Of course, I would have you know elaborated in that report a little bit later. But my first cut was going to be just you know noting the very obvious Comfortable finish victory. Yeah, yeah, the the, the 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 textbook victory that was set up by the bowlers and the excellent captaincy of Aaron Finch and the way that he swung the changes and so on, so on, so on. And then um, you know a massive rewrite required. <laughs> um, the minute I got off air, as the yes. game you know sort of drifted away from Australia. Well, not even drifted. It was more abrupt than that. And, it, and then at the end with Stoyness, who I felt really sorry for at the time because all we've heard from the Australian camp in the lead-up to the series was that they didn't see Stoyness as a finisher. They thought that he was best used at the top of the order or inside the power play. And we saw tonight that he remains very well suited to the power play. Struck five boundaries in the first six overs after coming in when Wade got out. I think he struck five boundaries and I think four of them were in the two overs that he had left in the power play when he walked out to the middle. So again, it reinforces that point that that's where he's best positioned in this T20 team but he, yeah he was sent out as the finisher in the first game which doesn't suit his skill set and it kind of backfired and meanwhile Mitchell Marsh who has been playing that role for the Scorchers and indeed did play that role tonight uh, was omitted uh, and it felt like a, a strange one for me given that Marsh was the incumbent uh, and Stoinis was the new man in but yeah they got it right in the end it just took them a couple of games to get there if you know what I mean in terms of the, the balance of the side and, and I guess the the interesting one I'm not sure if you caught up with this either Jeff but Matthew Wade he wasn't just rotated in for Alex Carey I mean, Finch made it pretty clear that Carey had been omitted. And when you consider that Alex Carey is the player they not only think will we'll keep for the test team and all three formats long term, I mean, he's kind of talked up as an ex-captain, really, isn't he? And that he will now have to earn his spot back. And Matt Wade only made... I think 16, but inside that 16, he smashed Jofra Archer for one of the biggest sixes you'll ever see, which kind of uh, reasserted Australia in the power play after Archer and Wood got on top of them on Sunday. It was a really important sort of moment in time, which helped, uh, you know, get them in the right zone to take on Archer. And they, they extracted 25 runs from his first two overs, which, you know, meant they had a big power play. I think what we see with Stoinis is that 
thing that we see so often with picking national T20 squads out of domestic competitions, which is that the best players across a domestic comp all bat at the top of the order. Yeah, you know, yeah. You've, you've got your best your best cricketers will open, your best batters will open, or bat three at worst, meaning that they make piles of runs as an opener. They make a, a case that they can't be left out. They have to be picked. Got to go to India because, you know, <laughs> he's made 600 runs in, in in the last domestic tournament. And then you end up with half a dozen openers and, like, what are you supposed to do with them? And, and you don't – nobody in a domestic comp, it's very rare that people actually play a dedicated finishing role at six or seven. Or if they do, they don't make the piles of runs that get them picked. You know, they mm, make mm. very important 20s or 30s off, you know, 22 off 12 balls or whatever it might be. But they don't do the job that actually gets them picked in the team. And so then you end up with these unbalanced squads. And we've seen it time and time again in the way that national squads have been picked in, in T20 cricket. Yeah, I touched on Agar a moment before. And, and look, Agar isn't a finisher. So, but it was interesting here hearing him talk on, I think it was Sunday or Monday, uh, about how he wants to become a dependable number seven in a side that, I mean, it's it's clear they are going to play five specialist bowls in the World Cup. I mean, there's no way they'd be doing it as often as they are if that wasn't their plan A. I mean, Stoinis and Mitchell Marsh didn't bowl an over between them in the whole series. Glenn Maxwell bowled a couple in, in the second game, and I think he bowled two or three in the first game. Really important overs too, by the way, as well. Good captaincy from Finch to identify that matchup against the left-handers where Maxwell has an average of sort of 15 compared to 50-odd against right-handers. But I digress. The point is, is that if you're going to have five bowlers and Agar definitely at seven, you better have a good player at six. Or, or should I say a player that's suited to the role at six and we know that now mm. the data bears that out that you're only going to face sort of in the vicinity of in an ordinary T20 maybe 12 to 15 balls and you need to make yep. it count and you also need the other club in the bag which is that you can get your team out of trouble if they you know yep. and, and that's kind of what Mitchell Marsh walked into tonight when he was in there at uh, 87 for four and then it was 100 for five with seven overs to go when Agar joined him he needed to do sort of two things he needed to both steady the ship and also score at a, a decent clip and he, he took yeah. Mark Wood down eventually and that was the turning point in the game but for Stoinis that's never been his strength he's yes. coming in to score from ball one he doesn't necessarily do that and, and I've I've shared this hypothesis with you that almost the worst thing that happened to Marcus Stoinis was making that amazing hundred in Auckland where he hit 10 sixes and, and made a 150 odd not out and nearly won them a game from nowhere because he came in in that game with most of the innings to go after they were five yep. or six for bugger all. And he played that amazing innings, but all that anyone remembers is Marcus Stoinis hit a lot of sixes. And so they keep expecting him to be able to do that. But we saw in the World Cup last year, he really struggles to get going at times, um, particularly in, in the middle overs when the field's back and they're bowling spin and all the rest of it. And, and where he's looked good has been coming out and opening facing seam with the field up. And it's just a very different job. Yeah, your analysis is spot on about uh, usually the best T20 players at domestic level will bat in the top three or four. And look, Stoinis... He, the best comparison is Chris Gale in terms of the strike rate in the first five, ten balls and uh, how he plays himself in before sort of teeing off. And there's clearly a role for that player in T20 cricket. The question is, where does Stoinis fit when you've got Finch and Warner uh, who are obviously going to open? Yeah. Does he bat three with Smith four and Maxwell five? Okay, well, that's not, that's not a problematic balance. That's a, probably a pretty good balance. But a lot of the time they'll want to have the, the scope to have Maxwell being at least named at four. Uh, I know he's had a, a, a poor series by his mm. standards. He failed twice and made 23 in the, the game in the middle, the game they lost and didn't make enough runs and where Maxwell was doing a bit of a patch-up job. But, yeah, so really when it, when it all boils down to, when you kind of scale it all back, we know that that five could work together. And now that Kerry's out of the five, incidentally, it, that's 
quite interesting if they want to back in Matthew Wade for a period of time in that role whether he might I mean he was doing the Maxwell job when Maxwell was injured in South Africa but anyway that's that's by the by the actual finisher role when Marsh was asked tonight about it in his press conference he said something like and I, I thought this quote was quite instructive I put it into my report he was thinking about it while he was batting he's like how much he loves the pressure of having to win the game for Australia and how he really enjoys the idea of the expectations mm. are that he will do it and that you know, he doesn't resolve from it he, he takes the alternate view that it's super exciting that he can be the match winner and that's probably the personality that you need and he's been around long mm. enough now Mitch Marsh he made his debut I didn't realise this he, he played his first T20 international back in 2011 back in uh, Johannesburg so yeah. that's, even though he's only played 15 of them it's not as though he's uh, been around for five minutes he, he should be by definition a senior player in his team right now and, and to that end yeah. I, I think that you know again it might have taken them three games to get there but Marsh at six has certainly earned an opportunity when India came out in a couple of months It's kind of interesting that there's, there's almost the same shifting around of the tiles in the England team where they've mm, had Joss mm. Butler being being their finisher, you know, known as someone who can come in and make 30 off 10 at the end. But he's now a player who's made himself indispensable as an opener in T20 internationals because he's just so good from the get-go. And we saw that through this series where he was he only played the two matches but was supreme. He averages 111 at the HGS Bowl in four uh, T20 Oof. internationals uh, <laughs> at a strike rate of like a million. And his strike rate opening now, I think it dropped to 159 on Sunday when he was mounted the oh, match. And, you know, after slack. making... Yeah, it, it's, it managed to drop in that position despite how... Uh, how important that innings was. It was the slowest he's ever batted in a power play uh, when he got out the other end of it, which I think, again, was interesting because it was a small chase and he modulated his, his game accordingly because he's a fucking superstar and he can do what he wants. But, yeah, good problem to have in a way because when Roy comes back, it'll be Roy, Bairstow and and Butler vying for the two opening spots and all three of them obviously will want to do it. Bairstow made a half century today. Roy, his his uh, body of work speaks for itself in 20 over cricket. So whether they just pop Joss back to number six because that's the best fit or they might play all three of them in the similar way to what I'm saying with um, Finch, Warner, Stoinis, maybe they go, mm. well, look, we'll, we'll effectively play three openers, if you like, and then in the same way that Smith will um, then be there at number four as the, you know, the glue in the middle, that can kind of be Milan, who, again, his record's yeah, fairly ridiculous in that role, or Joe Root, if they choose to go the other way, but it feels like they're backing in uh, Milan more and more, and, he, and his numbers would, would, you know, support that as well. And then, you're right, though, their problem is who's going to bat number six, because they're going to play more often than not, they're going to balance up now, it seems anyway, with, with that five bowler formulation. So Chris Jordan was coming in at number seven today, for example. So Which, well, this series, which just looked too early yeah. all the time. You know, you, yeah. you look at a team sheet and see Jordan at seven. I mean, honestly, a team sheet with Agar at seven is more convincing to me than one with Jordan at seven. But it's the future, isn't it? Like, I mean, I suppose the difference in 50 over cricket is that often you'll need Liam Plunkett walking in at number 10, you know, because, uh, or, or, or whoever else it was in that England lower order that made them so strong, because often you will need you know, eight or nine or ten players to make runs in a one-day international. In T20 mm. cricket, they're banking on the idea that the most of the work will be done by the top five and then a bit by six yeah. and maybe a little bit by seven so they can get away with that mixture. But, I mean, Joe Denley was playing yeah. in that role today and he won't obviously be playing in the World Cup next year barring some um, you know, very unusual set of circumstances with injuries and form and so on. But Sam Billings is the guy they want for that, right? And Billings has made... Um, really no runs in the four opportunities mm. he's had this summer in T20 cricket, all the four games he's played against Pakistan and getting back into the team today when uh, when uh, he essentially replaced Owen Morgan. So 
Yeah, that they're in a similar boat. And, and why did why did Morgan miss? Because they had Moeen captaining tonight. Yes, uh, which was, which was nice to see, but Morgan missed out. Yeah, so uh, Morgan uh, had, um, dislocated his finger, which the one he hurt last year. He did it again on Sunday. Oh, the, so. the one he did in the um, was that the one he injured before the warm up game against Australia, where yeah. he sat that one out. That's right. That's spot on. Yeah. So the same finger, which he he hurt it on Sunday, and and was there was like a five minute delay or something like that and but he still came out and batted and whatever but they they took the precautionary route given they've got the one day is coming up but yeah so Moen Ali captaining England for the first time was interesting he's had an interesting series across the board really he seldom bowled he, I think there was some stat that Zoltz had that um or, or maybe it was Ben Jones or maybe it was both of them that he's bowled before tonight he'd bowled 10 overs in 2019 in T20 cricket never more than two in an innings and eight of the mm. 10 had been in the power play so, in other words, the Moeen Ali from two or three years ago, who was, you know, the second spinner, more in a more traditional sense of the word, the second spinner and bowling, you know, yeah. four overs alongside Adil Rashid, that's kind of gone now. And he bowled himself for one over tonight in the middle overs, actually quite a good one. I think it only went for six or seven. But generally speaking, he's now playing as a bat. And that was actually quite an important moment in tonight's game where Mitchell Stark bowling to Moen Ali, um, who was on 23 but just hit a six. And Steve Smith took a catch right on the rope. One of those ones where when they were going on the replay back and forth, toggling, toggling, toggling to determine whether Smith's heel had touched the, the rope or not. It could have gone either way, but had Moeen been there for the last five overs, they'd probably make, you know, 10 more runs, let's say. Uh, instead, mm. there was a bit of a limp finish and Australia were only chasing 146 and, you know, that, that was mm. never going to be too much after the, the openers and the number three and Stoinis got off to a pretty good start. Yeah, it, it does make me wonder the thing you mentioned earlier with David Milan versus Joe Root, whether the deciding factor in that might be, you know, that, that Root has had his struggles in, in test cricket and maybe just the idea of him being an all-format player is something that the selectors decide for him that he's not really going to be that rather than him having to make that decision himself. You know, often players in the middle of their careers find it hard to actually, you know, make that call to actually say no to mm. a particular form of cricket. Yeah, and I wonder whether... Yeah, it, it's a funny time in the cycle, really, because you consider that the last T20 World Cup, it'll be five years between T20 World Cups and two in two in a year. And remember mm. when the last T20 World Cup was on in uh, 2016, they were going to this four-year cycle, and that did kind of lend itself to, you know, the bad old days of one T20 being popped on the end of a you know, of, of mm. an ODI series. And then over the years, we've kind of got to this status quo of three T20s. And now that the one-day Super League started, they'll, they'll seldom be more than three one-day internationals played in a series, which is a good thing. So we'll probably see them balanced out with three and three more often. But, yeah, I kind of wonder whether... Um, well, a couple of things about the sort of broader T20 international setting, which I, I think is worth sort of putting out there. One is that having a third team involved where you can, uh, you know, adding adding a third person to the relationship to spice things up a little bit. Um, <laughs> they, um, it, it's a, I think where it's possible to do it, and it, again, I've, I've raised that example of Zimbabwe a number of times where we were there a couple of years ago, and you can play every day in that scenario, provided you're at the same ground like we were at the AGS Bowl this week, but you can play... A whole, an entire tri series in in seven days, and we've just had you know a, a three game series played in five days. Two of those days, the players were sort of in the hotel, and you know without sort of breaking confidences or anything like that. Not that there's any confidences to break, but we're just not meant to really reflect on what they're doing in their personal time. But the guts of it is, is that they're just fucking around like we are, 
and mm. whatever it is they're doing in their games room. Um, and it doesn't really seem like an efficient use of time. I understand why if you're moving from city to city, but I think like we might have stumbled upon with, uh, you know, orbit in the biosecure kind of COVID land way of thinking of it but if you play a t20 series at one venue and you do rope in a third team and you play seven games in seven days i think that will be when we really start seeing this format of the game at international level take the next step rather than just kind of bilateral series without any broader organizing structure i didn't even mention the fact that australia went back to number one in the world tonight england overtook them on sunday then australia overtook them again tonight and you know why because it doesn't really matter that much (laughs) Because across the board, there's not enough T20 international cricket played for that to mean a tremendous amount. But yeah, I think into the future, I'd like to see some more flexibility when it comes to scheduling around playing games in consecutive days, one. And two, where, where at all possible, um, having a third side. So whether that means, you know, I, I wonder whether the Chapel Hadley Trophy, which you and I have been to a number of times in the last four or five years in Australia and in New Zealand, well, now the one-day Super League's in position. I doubt they'll play yeah. one day as against New Zealand every year because why would they? Where's the time? Instead, why not have a, a T20 tournament to start each summer? Why not have a, a seven-day T20 tournament tournament between Australia, New Zealand and and a third country, like an invitational, which, you know, Mm. one year it's hosted in New Zealand, the other year it's hosted in Australia, you know, maybe whoever wins the the, the games, the the Trans-Tasman games can take the Chapel Hadley Trophy as well. And that can be like a a really sort of good focal point to start the white ball season and have a bit more meaning around it rather than, um, you know, what we've had in the past, which has been, like I say, kind of a, it can often be an afterthought, even though it's it's had more, um, more of an emphasis in the last couple of years. We mentioned Joss Butler being consistent in his game. One thing that I was very pleased to see uh, that a consistency has remained is that he's still drifting out of his crease as as the bowler (laughs) delivers. I saw some side-on photography work of Joss being definitely, definitely past his ground as the ball came out of the bowler's hand. Has not learned a single thing after all of his controversies. And that led us during the week to a nice moment when the Afghanistan international Dorlat Zadran produced a beautiful run out of the non-striker in that people say it doesn't involve skill. This one involved skill because he'd, he'd really got in, you know, onto the bowling crease and had then realised the non-striker was about three metres out of his ground, just drifting away down the pitch. And Dorlat Zadran wasn't within reach of the stump, so he had to turn around and throw back and, and clipped the bales with his throw and, and affected this run out. Now, I've been a, a Dorlat Zadran fan since the 2015 World Cup. Mm, He's the player mm. who, who got out towards the end of that run chase and got abused off the field by his batting partner, Samuel Shinwari, who just shouted at him all the way off. <laughs> um, and since then, I've followed Dorlat Zadran's career quite closely. Uh, he, he ran out his Afghanistan teammate, Noor Ali Zadran, in the Shpagiza League, which is one of the more satisfying leagues to say. Um, but, you know, it's, it's nice to see that, that happen again and that made me think of Joss and, and I thought that Dorlat Zadran should be our CBUS super performer of the week I, I doubt you'll take issue with that <laughs> No I, I won't at all I mean, uh, uh, Dorlat Zadran I remember bowling that lovely spell um, at the start of the World Cup game against Australia where I think he uh, picked up Finch early oh, against on. Warner yeah, he yeah, bowled he really nicely to Warner and he got Finch. I think it was Finch he got out early on. And you're thinking, gee, Afghanistan might be on here. Press fast forward two and a half hours and Australia have made like 400 and Warner's made 180 of them or something ridiculous. But his first spell was lovely. And yes, I think he should be a CBUS Super Performer of the Week. CBUS manage over $50 billion of members' money. 
and their average return over the last 35 years is 9.23%. Whoa, I would invest $50 billion into more runouts of the non-striker if, if I had access to those sort of funds. Cvasuper.com.au, get yourself a product disclosure statement from the website. You know that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You also know uh, that Super Super have been outstanding supporters of uh, what we try and do week in, week out with the final words. So if you are interested in uh, working with them and moving your superannuation to them or any of the other um, financial services that they support their members with, uh, drop along to cbysuper.com.au. A couple of bits and pieces before we move off the, the T20 short form stuff, Jeff. Joffre Archer and Mark Wood spell to start the power play now this is on sunday i mean where they that mm. un- extraordinary barrage of case to, to begin uh warner's yeah. out for his first duck since 2012 in that form of the game i mean an unplayable delivery he reviewed it and i kind of get it because you watch it both feet are off the ground it's a it's a mess of limbs and the ball sort of sneaks through and kisses the glove on the way and that that's shown to be the case on on hot spot but um it wasn't just that though it was the way that wood bowled to carry uh, it was the way that Joffre went on to you know, beat Finch several times before he kind of got set. Uh, you know, it, all, for all the talk of England missing a left armour in the power plays, and I think they do. I mean, Andy Zaltzman, again, who we've been working with, he worked out that the at the other end of the innings, in terms of the death overs, that seven of the ten best economy rates in the death over the seven biggest T20 leagues, so a lot of cricket being played across those high-profile T20 leagues, are from left-arm seamers in terms of their economy rate. So we know that um, you know at the death they work, and we know up front that David Willey has been able to take a lot of wickets uh, with the white ball, but England are going a different way. They're just going raw power. They're just going, more power with Wood and Archer, and it was fucking exciting. Whether it's sustainable long-term and whether it's sustainable in India, we'll, we'll time will tell. But that was pretty cool, and um, and and Max Power. Yeah. You don't snuggle with Max Power. You strap in and feel <laughs> the cheese. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's play a very brief, a little game, just a little fun game between you and me, because I know it's late and I know you're tired. We'll 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 make this quick, but it will it It'll will be let us stretch it. our it'll let us stretch our brain muscles as we get into a short aerobic round of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on the patron page where they try to stump us by sending us a number and we're trying to work out what the number means and how it relates to cricket and the incentive, what's in it for us aside from looking into cricket history is that it's a way of supporting the show. They send the number in the form of dollars and cents to patron to support the show. It's a perfect storm, nerdery and subscription at the same time. Uh, Nerd Pledge, we're just doing a couple of numbers briefly today, the first of which came in from Simon Koslina. The number was $2.04, and the hint from Simon was that when he was a player, he was cumulatively a captain, a wicketkeeper, and an opening batsman. Adam? Well, a man who, who captained Australia, who kept for Australia and opened the batting for Australia periodically was Adam Gilchrist, which was my first thought. Of course, he didn't open the batting in, um, in, in, in test cricket, but his 204 came. He uh, batted in- number three. A couple of times. Yeah, I mean, he would occasionally be used to um, to play that role in the second innings. He may have opened, you know, he might have opened a couple of times when they were chasing quick declaration batted, runs. Did he bat three? I think he batted three in India when he made a king pair, uh, like when he when he made a golden duck in each innings. I think one of those was an elevation to number oh, three right. when he got out for naught. I, I think. 
maybe. It was in that sequence. There was right. definitely a King Perry in that series and he batted mm-hmm. a three at one point in that series and it didn't work. When he did make runs, we, 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 uh, we, well, we remember well uh, that double hundred uh, at the Wanderers in 2002, which at the oh, time... Wanderers, at the Wanderers, <laughs> he got around, 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 around. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, emphatic, crazy innings, bombastic <laughs> innings and all the rest. Uh, what I kind of found interesting about this was I knew in the back of my mind that he only held the mantle for the quickest double hundred in test cricket for a little while. I didn't realise just for how how small that window was. So he plays that innings mm. on the 23rd of February, 2002. And Nathan Astle, who goes on to not just break that world record, but kind of Usain Bolt at Beijing. Obliterate it. Uh, a break the world record. <laughs> he, he, so Gilchrist's 200 comes from 2-1-2 balls. Uh, and then Nathan Astle gets there in 1-5-3 balls. But that's on the 16th of March in the same year. It's like a few weeks later. I mean, you know... Yeah. You know I like that, Jeff, when things happen in quick, close succession. Mm. In the past, we've, we've had a few of those. But, yeah, it's quite the record. But um, what I'm mostly interested in from that, and maybe Nathan Astle, I don't think he... Did he ever keep for New Zealand, Nathan Astle? He used to bowl. I don't think he did. So that, we, I mean... He used to bowl little seamers. Yeah, I know. He, I knew he bowled, but I'm, I'm kind of got in the back of my mind that he might have kept a couple of times. But I doubt that... I mean, it's New Zealand. Probably every, everybody's kept at some point. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly um, versatile... Set up most of the time. But uh, look, I, would we agree that it's probably Gilchrist? Although now that I've seen that clue, which I didn't see before, the captain thing throws me a bit. If we're talking about a captain that's made 204, I doubt that would be the, the first way I would describe Adam Gilchrist. And indeed, I don't know whether I'd describe him as an opening batsman either. I mean, I know that he was in white, in white ball cricket, but normally when... With no, I, I think that's it. I, I think that I think that Simon Coslina has said, "Look, I captained, I kept, and I opened, and Adam Gilchrist did all of those three okay. things." And in that way, we are kindred spirits. I mean, if you think of Adam Gilchrist, you think of him as a one-day opener. That's one of the most prominent ways you'd think of him. Yeah, okay. And you do think of him as he's the captain who who won that Test series in in India the final frontier mm-hmm. and all the rest of it when Ponting was injured. They're all integral parts of the Gilchrist story. So I think the 204, I mean, that was the, that, that's almost the pinnacle of Gilchrist, the test batsman. That's when you go like, holy shit, the, the way that this guy can turn games around and dominate them is just beyond belief from number seven. Okay, you've convinced me. Thank you, uh, Simon Coslina. $2.04, we've got Adam Gilchrist at the Wanderers in 2002. Our next number from Hugh Kenny Herbert, who has taken a hammer to the piggy bank and sent us the ridiculous amount of $19.97. Wow. And when I saw $19.97, I thought, is that is that a calendar reference? Is it a year reference? Or is it something more obscure? But Hugh also sent a clue, and his clue was that it involved a run chase. And I knew if there was a run chase and if it was in 1997, there is only one thing it could be. And it is one of the things dearer to the heart of Adam Collins than (laughs) almost anything else. Um, The thing that made Mark War say, you know more about my career than I do. Yeah. Stop asking me questions. Yeah. that. that, So I'm not sure if I've told this story on the show before, but I sat down with Mark War in uh, Jamaica before the 2015 test match there. So kind of a, I was doing like a 20 year retrospective on his Sabina Park epic and the other one that kind of sits next to it is what he did in Port Elizabeth uh, two years on in that wonderful chase when they managed to pick up uh, a victory against South Africa making 271 in the fourth innings which may not sound that impressive but you look at the scorecard across the entirety of the test match South Africa were all out 209 then Australia were all out 108 
then South Africa were all out 168. I mean, you're heading towards a you know a, one of those incredibly low scoring affairs, and then uh, Australia yeah. managed to somehow get to 271, and they should have got there perhaps a fraction easier than that. Mark War gets out to Jack Callis when they're. 258 there's still 13 runs to get and Michael Bevan gets out I think next ball uh, who he'd been batting with um, for a little while before that so it ends up being Ian Healy who walks in and smacks that massive six uh, which is most memorable to uh, get Australia the win and Warren gets out in that sequence as well so it's it's Gillespie batting at the end after taking key wickets when they when they bowled out South Africa cheaply the second time Gillespie that's right the top three that's right um, and, and they I mean they were in position to they were they should have been in a much worse position because they, I think both the openers were in the 40s at that point. And uh, was it Ali Barker and Gary Kirsten? Yep, that's it. Opening yep. in that game? Adam Barker. Um, Adam Barker. Gillespie got the son of Ali. Adam Barker, sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it would have been good if Ali had the bad son. Um, yeah, they were both 40 odd when Gillespie came out and knocked them over um, and then got another one as well was it uh, was it McMillan Daryl Cullinan was it the, sorry uh, yeah it's Cullinan it's the other wicket that Gillespie gets in that stretch yep. and then the other part of that is that this was the brief window I mean it didn't last for long but when Michael Bevan was a serious test bowler so his analysis in the second innings is 13 overs 3 maidens 3 for 18 so basically cleaning mm. up the lower order but including uh, the wickets of Hansi Cronier and, and, and Brian McMillan and I mentioned before that you know it Michael Bevan gets uh, derided as an, uh, you know, an insufficient test batsman, but uh, 24 um, of 62 balls and batting for an hour and a half with Mark Waugh in a, in a, in a chase where I mean, the second highest score was Matthew Elliott with 44. But you go back through the three innings, Adam Barker um, top scored with 48 in the third innings. Uh, in Australia's first innings, no one made more than Elliott's 23. Uh, and in South Africa's first innings, uh, McMillan top scored with 55. So a very low-scoring affair. Bevan was really important too. Uh, there's a bit in Mark Wall's, mm, I think it's in that um, pretty ordinary book that he put out in 2002. Um, not one of the um, not one of the better uh, cricketers' biographies, that one. Um, although I did buy um, the um, promotional uh, life-size cardboard cutout of that at Bay 13 in the 2002 <laughs> one-dayer um, for four beers. <laughs> The bloke who had it, who I did know, I must admit, but I said to him, I need to have that. I need to own that. What's the going rate? And he said, can you buy us four beers? I'm like, yeah, sold. Um, so I came back and I, and I took Mark Wall home with me that night. And to this day, it sits uh, in my parents' shed in Birigara. And it was attended my 21st birthday party. It, it, it's been to a lot of things, the, mm. the, Mark Wall, yeah. Yeah, the Mark Wall cardboard cutout. But Mark Wall talks in that shitty book about hearing Bohemian Rhapsody over and over again by the St. George's Park band. Now, Jeff, the more I think about that, the, the less likely I think that is an accurate recollection from Mark Waugh. As we know, we've heard we, we've heard the... Um, you and I have listened to the, uh, the St. George's Park band quite a bit, and they're not the sort of band that would play Bohemian Rhapsody. Indeed, you don't know really any of their songs, apart from Stand By Me, you don't know their songs because mm. they're... I mean, they're not... They're, they're band improvisers. They're band improv stuff, yeah. So mm. I, I, I don't think uh, that... And they're, they're brass band stuff. And what they certainly don't do is play the same song over and over again. They're not the Barmy Army. No. They're not, they're not like the most ridiculously over-celebrated and under-delivering uh, fan <laughs> interaction in the world with their, like, two songs. They they play all day. With those, they've got a whole range of music. Uh, you know, maybe it was different back then. Maybe in 1997 there was an unimaginative band leader, but I, I can't really imagine. Maybe it's just 
just that Mark War doesn't know how music goes and he, he just thinks every song is Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, as soon as you start playing something, he's like, is this a real life? <laughs> is this just fantasy? Well, yeah, I'm tipping that he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's um, you know, uh, the, the, the scope of music he might have listened to in that, in that time when he was playing for Australia mightn't have extended far beyond that. But, yeah, he made 116, uh, batted for 323 minutes. And when I was younger and I used to care more about Mark Wall's legacy as a batsman, I, this is the innings I'd come back to time and time again. And I'd go, oh, he's fucking soft, you know, not as good as his brother. I'd go, but look at Port Elizabeth, fourth innings. What about Port what Elizabeth? What about Port Elizabeth? I mean, I don't do that now because I don't care anymore. But as a younger man, I did a lot. And if you want to read why I care so much, there's an article in The Cricketer from five years ago, which I spent like six weeks on and probably no one's ever read. But I promise you, I cared a lot. Don't need more. Mark Waugh, yeah. Port Elizabeth. <laughs> I, did, I did like the point when Mark Waugh was asked to name uh, his autobiography and he couldn't tell you what the title was because um, he'd never read it. Um, anyway, that that is the end of Nerd Pledge for today. If you'd like to join in Nerd Pledge by sending us a number, you just go to patreon.com slash the final word. You can sign up to support the show uh, to whatever extent or duration you would like and your number will go on our list and we will come to it in the show or on story time on the weekends where we do more numbers more deeply. Uh, Jeff, we have another set piece uh, on the final word, which we do from time time to time and I think today might be a good time for it. What do you say? I say happy birthday, Sachin. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Take it away, Jeff. Happy birthday, Sachin. Look, it's been it's been a month. I've been remiss in my happy birthday, Sachin, duties because I've been a bit busy with other things. I've finally I sent off the full manuscript a couple of days ago with all the corrections and edits done, and so I'm I'm now free to delve back into Sachin Tendulkar's online presence and find out what he's been doing on the internet and who he's been wishing happy birthday to. There's quite a crop given that it's been a few weeks. So a lot of Indian cricketers, as usual, Deepti Sharma and Jemima Rodriguez of the women's team have got a gong. Oh, good. Uh, Tino Best for the West Indies, bit of international <laughs> representation. I, again, I'd love to see the selection criteria. Karan Pollard and Tino Best are the only Windies players I've seen repped in the last few months. Uh, Don Bradman got one. He's the only dead person to get a happy birthday. So uh, the Don works in a special echelon above other cricketers that he still gets a, a happy birthday even though he has departed this mortal coil back in 2001 just before the uh, mm. series in India that we mentioned earlier. They were over there, weren't they? They were over in... It was just before the... Uh, yeah, they were. Just before the first test at Mumbai, yeah. When they steamrolled India by an innings in the first test and nobody knew that that would be the last of the 16 wins in a row by Australia. <laughs> I think isn't isn't the... The one-a-day work, rest, and play uh, stadium. Uh, one of the many with a Don Bradman stand as well, if I recall correctly, which is where they were playing that week. Ah, uh, I hope so. I mean, the, these are the beautiful idiosyncrasies of of the game in India. That's entirely plausible. Mashamad Hami, Mohammed Shami. Got a birthday gong from Sachin, uh, as did his fast bowling colleague Ishant Sharma. And I particularly like, here's a bit of wordplay from Sachin, the little master, <laughs> likes to get involved in, in the punnery. Now, you may be aware that, that, the, that the word shanti in Hindi means peace. And if you take the I from the end of shanti and put it on the start, it makes 
Ishant. And so Sachin says, your bowling doesn't allow the batsman to play in Shanti. Oh, Sachin. Many happy returns of the day, Ishant. Ah, oh, beautiful work from Sachin straight out of the middle, straight down the ground. That's gorgeous. <laughs> um, there's some actors always get a gong as well. So Sunil Shetty and Chinjuri Conadella have got a happy birthday and professional rich guy Amit Bhatia has got one as well. When, you, when you've got enough money, you get one from Sachin. Uh, lots of praise for COVID workers, lots of stuff around Independence Day, MS Dhoni's retirement, as you'd expect. And, and probably my three faves from the last month, a good congratulations to the Indian chess team oh, good. for some sort of uh, some sort of victory. Or maybe it was a, a draw with Russia that let them both be champions. I haven't investigated that thoroughly, I'll be honest. Uh, there's a truly terrible painting of Sachin by a school kid whose eager, proud parent has tweeted it and Sachin's reposted it saying it's beautiful. Um, that's very generous from him considering the standard at play. It's not as bad as the Stuart Broad painting from 2013, but, you know, it's... It'd be on the podium at this point. And he's also doing some spawn cons, some sp- sponsored stuff with a, a solar power company, which is it's good to see some ecological responsibility in the spawn cons from Sachin to make sure some of his money is coming from the right place. Does so, he put hashtag, uh, those- ad, hashtag <laughs> ad at the end, which I often see on Instagram from, from that stuff? Or does he just, it, does he take it as assumed that we're going to work it out? I, th- I think he takes it as assumed. Apparently, they've had a partnership for something like 10 years, so they've been in oh. early. Sachin was solar-powered, of course. He's, he stood in the sun for <laughs> about 600 days of international cricket, and, and that's what powered him to go on and make all the runs. So those are the hits, the highlights, uh, and the celebrations from Happy Birthday, Sachin, for this maybe month. We'll see when it's back. Uh, Jeff, speaking of SponCon, uh, we should take a break. But when we come back, rest assured, we will have a lightning round. Lots of other stuff to get to uh, on this weekly edition of The Final Word. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. Let's start by agreeing that most sports writing is junk. There's a lot of trash. A lot of it's boring. A lot of it is about hamstrings. Uh, not a lot of people get into the, the depth, the detail, the, the, the real interest of the stories. What is this? Why is sport in our life? Why do we love it? Cricket has more of it than some, but the publication in cricket that does it more and better than any is The Night Watchman. The Night Watchman is a quarterly publication. That means for people who are confused about monthly publications, it comes out (laughs) once a quarter. That is four times a year, uh, which means that it's less often than a monthly. It's it's a more solid book-like production. It's come out quarterly for seven years. They've done 30 issues, 600 stories, 1.5 million words. And in that time, they try to write about the interesting things, the things that don't get written about the rest of the time. They're not obvious stories. They're the the off-Broadway things, the off-track, the off-piste, the the ideas that that wander off into the cricketing wilderness. And what the Night Watchmen have done now is they've assembled a collection of Australiana, cricket writing about or relating to or touching on Australia, not necessarily all by Australians, but all relating to Australia and cricket in some way. And and this is what they've put together and this is what they're releasing now. Yeah, I think this is a really good idea. So when the Night Watchmen started back in 2013, uh, the view was that they wanted to make it big enough and effectively be a global publication with contributors from all over the world, not just the UK. And the fact that there's enough Australian cricket writing now to justify an addition all on its own, validates that and speaks to that. And I'm not just saying Australian writers, of course. I mean, whilst uh, people like 
ourselves, of course, and I see Christian Ryan's in this edition as well, uh, who, who of course wrote the, the definitive uh, book about Kim Hughes, which was recently voted Wisdom Cricket Monthly's greatest cricket book ever. If uh, it's had many gongs over the years, but the best cricket book ever is quite the gong. But no, it's it's other writers as well, like reflecting on the Australian game. So uh, in this case, I mean, there's Lawrence Booth, there's Jonathan Liu, who wrote the essay about the Shane Warne mural that you have to see to believe. It is without a doubt the the funniest piece of cricket writing I've ever happened upon. We had Jonathan on the final word playing Nerd Pledge Quids with us a few months ago. But just imagine Shane Warne, Jason Gillespie, and a time machine, which goes... Surely was a hot tub. Which, Must have been a hot which, tub which goes, yeah, yeah, which goes on, a, on account of uh, how, how quickly Warne spins the ball. Well, that's how you get his mural brought to life by him. And you'll see that in this edition of The Night Watchman as well. So it's pretty cool, uh, Jeff. Uh, there's a bunch of other good writing in here as well. I'll let you rattle off a few of them. But the idea idea of it is is that through the final word and night watchman we're working collaboratively to give you um, a percentage off uh, to make sure that there's an incentive there to pick up this new edition of the mag it's a digital edition it's not a hard copy of the book it's a it's it's purely a, a digital edition so and hopefully it'll whet the appetite and you'll read this and you'll want to become a subscriber long term that you've got the a sense for what the night watchman's all about there's a whole lot in this edition uh, the line leading australian players Donald Bradman may have heard of him and, and Betty Wilson in the women's game feature prominently. Uh, interestingly, there's a piece from Bill Ponsford's granddaughter, Megan, who uh, wrote a, a thought-provoking article for this collection. Uh, there's an original song from Neil Hannon. There's a whole stack of other stuff about 40 pieces in there all told. Um, I've, I've got a piece in there with Jim Maxwell, which I'm extremely proud of and not many people have read, I think, because it was kind of part of this TMS compilation four or five years ago. So I'm glad this is getting another run for my part because it's something like, you know, I love Jim and you love Jim and all the rest. And I think a lot of Australian cricket fans feel very close to Jim. But reading his story, his backstory as it relates to Test Match Special, I think people will enjoy an awful lot. What was the piece that you wrote that, that's in this edition? I've got the 6,000-word psychoanalysis of David Warner, uh, which, which I, I think, I think oh, holds right. up pretty well. Like, you know, I, think it, I think it still stands up today um, when I think back over what's in it. Now, what you can get for listening to the show is a 10% off. Ah, well, look, it's only five quid to begin with, but you can get 10% off that if that is important to you. You go to a bit.ly address, as in bit.ly, then you add a slash, then you add NW Aussie, uh, and then you'll get to a page where you can buy it. You put in the coupon TFW10 and you get your discount of 10% off. All of that will be in the show notes, so you don't need to memorize it or scribble it down on your hand right now. Just click in the text mm. under the episode, and the link will be there, and the code will be there, and there'll also be a link and a code to get 20% off the best of the Night Watchman, where they did a selection of their best writing over their entire history. So you can get that one for 20% off in print or digital too. So it, it's pretty economical to get a whole collection of excellent cricket writing if that's your bag, and if you're listening to this show... It probably is. Stop denying it. It's your bag. Just be forthright. It's time to face the truth. Well, this is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and the somehow still awake Adam Collins. It's time for the lightning round, which means we'll try to move through it as briskly as possible so that Adam can get two hours sleep before his infant daughter wakes him with screaming and possibly <laughs> projectile 
fluids from one orifice or another. Who knows how it's going to go around? It's party time in the Collins household at any point. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff stewing around with the Australian domestic schedule. We still don't actually know what it is going to look like. So we're kind of holding fire on that until we have some things confirmed on it, but there will be more on that in the next week or so. We do know that the Big Bash and the WBBL are going ahead. We've got the Women's Big Bash fixtures and a hub announced for that tournament um, after the, the series with New Zealand. So at least that's one concrete bit that we've got to go forward on. They're playing it all in, uh, all in Sydney, isn't it? Yeah, they're going to use those grounds. Well, the grounds that we've been accustomed to in, in the Women's Big Bash over the years, uh, and that makes a lot of sense, really. I mean, they're just kind of ripping the band-aid off, really, aren't they? They, they wanted to take it around as a travelling road show, and maybe that's what will happen with the Big Bash. We're unclear about how that will land. But what we do know is that they're out recruiting, as you would. Uh, there are a lot of clubs out there who want to get good players in there. I, I know there is a, a trade period for the BBL because last year I think there was one trade and they um, put a media release out to tell us about the one trade and <laughs> trade period but there was a, a, a trade confirmed as opposed to I mean Australian rules football where it's um, where it's a sort of a three week um, exercise in bashing your head against the wall but um, uh, Billy Stanlake is moving to the Melbourne Stars he's been traded for Dan Worrell who's moving off to the Adelaide Strikers so that's not for nothing there's a bunch of gun England white ball players who want to come out which I think is a good thing uh, we saw Joss Butler and, and Joe Root come out two years ago well this time around uh, Johnny Bairstow uh, is keen to come and apparently he's been linked to the Melbourne Stars Jason Roy David Milan who we spoke about earlier um, in the show about um, his recent fantastic T20 form for England, but they're all keen. And Jeff, perhaps bigger than all of that, is Yuvraj Singh. He wants to become the first Indian to play in the Big Bash. Of course, he's finished his broader commitments with the um, national team, uh, and he's, a, I guess, a gun, to, gun for hire in the T20 comps around the world. But historically, there, there's, they've, they've not been issued NOCs from India to come to play in Australia, but Yuvraj uh, feels confident that he'll be able to obtain one of those, which will... Um, see him in the competition, which will be obviously great news in a in a comp that that needs this injection of talent. As we talked to Trent Woodhill about this time My last week, my understanding of it is that he's wrapped up in the IPL as well. He's not going to continue playing there, and so that means he doesn't need permission from the Indian board mm. anymore. But they do still have that that kind of oh, sway right. that if if a player is still in the IPL, so like MS Dhoni still playing in the IPL, still can't play Big Bash without Indian board permission. So. Really, that's them trying to hoard their intellectual property and and not um, give any of their give any of the value in their players away to other leagues. And so you have to be completely done with Indian cricket professionally before you could come out. But yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting if Yuvraj could. I think it would still be a, a big deal because he's you know, still beloved in India, and there'd certainly be an amount of attention that would follow him here. Yeah, and look, I, I think the BBL in. There was a view that the BBL got beyond the point of needing novelty players. Like, remember the early yeah. days, like, Shane Warne played, uh, Murali was playing probably beyond the point where he was quite at that stage of his career. And, and you know, Kevin Peterson, how long he played for, arguably, um, it was kind of all wrapped up in the idea that 
it was a sort of a TV show and it was on every night on Channel 10 and, mm. and whatever. And then there was a view that the BBL had outgrown all of that. Well, maybe it hadn't outgrown it and maybe this will help. Even if Yuvraj is over the hill and, you know, probably closer to 40 than he is 35 at the moment. But yeah, that'd be an exciting new avenue for the competition to explore if they can start getting some Indian players over. Speaking of the IPL, we finally have the fixtures, Jeff. Only two days later than they promised um, this time around. We, we were told we were getting them Friday. They ended up um, coming out on Sunday. Uh, the first game on Saturday, the 19th of this month, uh, will be between the Mumbai Indians and the Chennai Super Kings. It's going to be, as we said last week, Jeff, it's going to be a, a pretty interesting um, competition uh, played behind closed doors in the UAE. The quarantining is going to be a big part of this conversation. They're talking about, as we expected, and indeed I think you foreshadowed um, a couple of months ago, they're, they're going to fly them out in a charter flight um, to the UAE, all the players in this current series. I think there are uh, 10 of the 21 Australian players and roughly the same out of the England squad, about half of the England squad who will be heading out to the UAE for that. But it means they'll miss anywhere between one and three games because they're not being allowed to, um, you know, kind of have the express quarantine that they hope they might have. So, yes, we will see where that all plays out. Who knows what will happen between now and when they, when they, when they get back from there. So does that, mean, does that mean a week in quarantine if it's one to three games rather than a, a fortnight? Or? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how long they're being asked to, to, to quarantine for, but I know that it's longer than they were hoping. Uh, so that will change things a bit. Uh, another Australian has uh, entered into the IPL this week, actually. Adam Zampa is going to be replacing Kane Richardson, whose uh, wife's having their first child, and he said that uh, he was going to sit out as a consequence. Daniel Sams, I'm not sure if I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, but Daniel Sams is replacing... You, t- you talk about how much how much having children costs. You know, they're always saying having a kid will cost you X <laughs> half a million dollars or whatever. This is a kid that's probably cost him half a million before it's even come out. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a big payday to miss. I, I guess the way they would look at it is the way that Kane Richardson's bowling at the moment, he's going to be making a lot of money off the T20 circuit for a long time and thus missing one. Who's to know? But yes, uh, Daniel Sams, who uh, who obviously hasn't had a lot to do on this tour so far, he will uh, be replacing Jason Roy at the Delhi Capitals. Not exactly a like for like, is it? No, but in saying that, I mean, Sams is highly regarded. From those who know this stuff, and I don't necessarily put myself in this category those who really understand the numbers of t20 cricket reckon that sam's is going to be a gun so um it'll be interesting to see whether he can force his way into uh, the starting 11 to one of the four spots uh, that delhi have at their disposal for non-indian players we briefly touched on this earlier when talking about dala zadran but how many stories are there at the moment speaking of the delhi capitals how many stories are doing the rounds about ravi chandu and ashwin and whether he will or won't man cat i've just got a feeling let's call it a prediction that he's going to do it all the time and it is going to be fucking amazing and he's just going to take this opportunity when there's so much focus on him and this uh, mode of dismissal that he'll be running out every non-striker mm. and he won't give a fuck and it's going to be a real thing and you know we, we've joked in the past that it's going to take a proliferation of non-strikers being run out in order for them to stay in their crease mm. there's no other real other way of the, 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 the tide turning and maybe Ashwin will, will choose this competition I, I've just got a feeling about it I I think that what we'll probably see we certainly saw it after he ran out Butler if you looked at the before and after of every other player every other non-striker at his end while he was bowling was very firmly in the crease so I, th- <laughs> I think we'll see them paying a lot more attention when he's bowling but I and maybe even just against the Delhi Capitals in general um, but I think it takes another player from from another team to get on the bandwagon and, and you know the solidarity someone else to get in support of the movement 
for it to become a broader thing across the board rather than you just have to be careful about this when Ashwin's bowling. Interesting that Ricky Ponting did a follow-up uh, about this last week with Ashwin on his uh, YouTube channel at where Ponting's position now is that, well, maybe there should be a run penalty. So at least we've got over the idea that it should just not be anything at all. But I saw Dave Tickner tweeting about this today saying, if you saw that Zadran example, as if that shouldn't just be a five-run penalty, it should be an awful lot more than that. Yeah. Andy Zaltzman, again, I'm, I've raised him three times today, but it's fair to say that Zaltz and I have spent a lot of time together in the last five nights. He was uh, mooting an interesting idea around this earlier, that maybe if your non-striker false starts and of course the third umpire will have that ability to see that the you won't be permitted to score runs off the ball so it's like a batting no ball so if you're if that that might be one way of um, providing an incentive inside the game that with the third umpire toggling away on the front foot no ball as they will be into Mm. the future thanks to the recently announced reforms they could also be watching for the non-striker and if they break I don't think this is the best way of doing it, but it is an option that um, yeah, you're, you're barred from scoring runs from that ball. So, interesting so, suggestion. Right, there. so that becomes a delivery, but a scoreless delivery. Yeah, so if you're hit for six. Yeah, that's oh, six sorry, guys, unfortunately, it's a dot ball. Because the non-strike was out of, his, out of the ground. Yeah. All of this stuff, I think, is just over trying to uh, find a solution for something that already has a really simple solution. And, and I think it's looking at mm. it the wrong way because it, it's looking at it as it's not cheating for the non-strike to be out of their ground. It's a legitimate exactly. tactical decision. They can make a decision to be they can make a decision to back up by four meters if they want to, if they want to take the risk. But that's how it should be. It should be a choice that carries a risk and, and carries a possibility of profit. And if you have those two things into the equation, then that's the tension that makes sport interesting, not having a, a hard and fast rule that then has to have people with, you know, micro granular replays saying, was there some bit of his boot behind the line before the ball had fully left the bowler's hand or whatever it is. It's just, it's overcomplicating it when it doesn't need to be. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. The jeopardy's uh, sufficient as it is, but if we're... I mean, if the debate gets to the point where we're going to be talking about fucking run penalties and so on, um, then maybe this is not a bad thing to have, at least in the conversation. Usman Khawaja, Jeff. We haven't talked about Uzi in a while, but he's been talking uh, about his own prospects of late. Interesting interview with Cricket Australia during the week. He spoke to the website. Not often you hear a player as forthright as Usman about his dumping from international cricket, which is now a year ago this week, I should add, noting that uh, he did call Justin Langer after he was left out of that extended squad of 26 for this tour and kind of gave him a piece of his mind, but equally that he felt satisfied after talking to Langer that he's the door isn't completely shut on him to play again. Uh, he says that uh, he's been dumped and dropped and left out of so many teams over the years, albeit sort of more when he was younger than in the last five years when he's been pretty consistently in and around squads. But he, he made a ton for his grade club this week to start the new season in Queensland. He believes that he would have been on standby if an opener had have, uh, had have got injured for this tour. But yeah, I think that, look, at least he's sufficiently happy to talk about the outcome of that conversation with Langer, that he, he feels like he's in a good place to push for national selection. And I think that's a good thing, that a player of his capacity isn't sort of saying, oh, well, I've been dropped, I've had it, that's it, I've cracked the shits. He's taking a good attitude to, I mean, unlikely as it is that he'll be recalled, but it, he's taking the right approach rather than sort of just... Uh, you know, sort of um, diminishing his reputation by um, being bitter about the whole situation. I suppose there's not a lot else you can do at, at, as a player. There's no point cracking it. Um, there's, there's no point giving angry interviews. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to help your 
help your reputation. It's, it's not going to help you get other jobs, even if you're not getting back into the national team. But there is still that lingering thing that he's, he's a player who is pretty hard done by in 50-over cricket, especially given that basically being dropped from the test team meant that he was then out of the one-day team by association, even though he was you know, mm. top three in their vote-getters for that year in terms of the best one-day international players, you know, had the most runs in the world coming into the 2019 World Cup and then had a not a terrible test series, you know, played three sort of ordinary tests, but he did have a couple of innings that had an influence in there, um, particularly at Edgebaston where he's, that 40 he made supporting Smith was important in the second innings there. So, you know, he didn't have a complete washout of a series. He just wasn't making big scores. And so obviously, you know, he was a, a reasonable person to make way when Smith needed to come back in. But that shouldn't have spelt the end of his one-day cricket necessarily, but it, it basically did. You know, Manus got into that one-day team really on the back of his test work uh, and and Kawaja was out of the one-day team on the back of his test work. So, look, I, going back to him in test cricket, he's had a, a lot of – he's had a long, long time in test cricket and has, you know, rarely – delivered fully on his potential so whether you know whether he comes whether there's much upside in getting him back into the test team I don't know but I think what he did in one day cricket showed that he has that capacity yeah I think if you go back at that decision to leave him out uh, during the ashes last year for Marnus it's hard to evaluate that decision as anything other than spot on which is just one of those things sometimes right like you're right that being dropped uh, when he was you know, after Leeds, you think it's a bit stiff, really, given the the way that he started 2019. Yeah, that 100 at Canberra didn't amount to much. And yes, he didn't have the best summer when India were out there, but he was essentially a senior player. It takes a lot to drop a senior player. And Marnus Labuschagne is a lot, isn't he? I mean, <laughs> by, any, by any definition, he is a lot. And now he's the established number three with Smith at number four, and that's the role Kawaja was playing. And kind of, you know, the, the show moves on. But at least he, uh, yeah, has had that sort of uh, show of faith from Langer that it's not, so, it's not kind of like it was with Sean Marsh last year when he was, by the sounds of things, told more along the lines of it doesn't really matter how many runs you make from here where we've moved on from you. So who knows? He, it's not as though Kawaja um, is too old to be reconsidered again. What is he, 33 or 34 yeah. possibly? I mean, there's, there's some pretty recent examples of players getting opportunities after the age of 35. So... Watch this space on that one player who we won't see again, Jeff. He played his final innings for first-class cricket today. Ian Bell, the last link to the 2005 Ashes campaign. (laughs) A lot to be said about Ian Bell's career, really. I mean, a member of that 05 Ashes winning team didn't make a lot of runs in that series. As he says himself, he wasn't ready for it in 05, but the experience he garnered from 05 was such an important part of him going on to win five Ashes series, which I think only three Englishmen have done, if I recall correctly. He made three centuries in three winning test matches in 2013, which was really his golden summer. He was still making runs in 2015, for that matter, as well. Important runs in that uh, victory at Edgbaston, which meant that England uh, won that test match. Jeff, you saw him play uh, at his peak, really, in that 2013 series, and perhaps the, the most elegant cover drive of his generation, certainly as far as England players are concerned. And, yeah, as I said at the top, uh, five Ashes wins speaks for itself. Yeah, him in that 2013 series, every time Australia was in a position to press the advantage, there was Ian Bell, and it disappeared, and... And that was definitely his finest hour. I, I 
saw some numbers that I, th- I think he lost more Ashes Test matches than he won, but still managed to have those five winning series. He would have had about a dozen mm. wins, a dozen one matches in those five series where they were winning sort of 2-1 or uh, scorelines like that, but also had the two five nils in Australia that meant he ended up mm. sort of lo- losing more tests than he won, but won the series um, that he won, you know, by by dint of that kind of hard playing cricket that they managed to to turn out in England where they yeah, it was two one in two thousand and nine, it was two one in two thousand and five and three one in Australia in, in ten eleven. So, you know, even though they weren't wiping the floor with, with Australia in those series, they were getting the wins. Yeah, and I think that, well, he's, he's 38 years of age as he, as he puts the cue in the rack. He hasn't played international cricket since 2015, of course. but So he did sort of get pensioned off at a relatively young age for a guy that played, what was it, 118 test matches by the end of his uh, stretch with in red ball cricket from 2004. So he played for 11 years, made over 7,000 runs, 22 centuries. And yeah, that last playing connection, I think, was what most people felt, I think, from 2005, every player from that wonderful series has now retired now of, of course some of them retired a long time ago and have gone on to do a number of things in their in their lives outside of the game and so on but bell was that constant always there even when it was all over he made a half century for warwickshire today to finish at nine boundaries on the way to 50 which is very ian bell but um well played yeah uh, he was a, he's i think you know one of the genuinely lovely players to watch and you, you put aside partisan uh, interest and so on and uh, a player that I think uh, we enjoyed watching as an Australian uh, because he, he he did it the right way. So the end of a, a very long and very much celebrated career. And I, I, I do think that if he had stayed in that England team for another four or five years, that they wouldn't have been a weaker side for it. No, probably not. Probably not. I think that brings us to the end of the show today. You need to go to bed uh, and I need to get on with my day. Yeah, it is. It is three a.m. It's three oh nine and forty six, forty seven, forty eight, forty nine seconds, which um, mm. is later seconds than seconds never stop. Counting. Yeah, I, I don't think it's been as late as that for me recording an episode of the Final Word for quite a long time. But it's been worth it. As I said off the top, it's not about my energy levels. It's about the preparation we do beforehand, or so I like to believe. And we're going to have mm. loads to talk about next week as well on the on the weekly show because I'll be talking to Alison Mitchell in a socially distanced way but it'll be our first mm. proper face-to-face interview for six months that wow. by the way it's six months today since the world cup final it was it's international women's day six months ago when australia won one when when australia yeah. won <laughs> the past tense is when <laughs> yes uh, i was going to re-record that but hey let's go with that uh, since they won the world cup final at the mcg in front of eighty-seven thousand people so this fucking nightmare has been going for six months now is another way of interpreting that but mm. yes ali mitchell will be our first chat in the flesh since then that'll be next week between times there'll be more story time on the weekend which we're having so much fun with if you haven't had a chance to catch up with that i loved listening back to the show which i don't always uh, feel that way when i listen back to what we've recorded i can sometimes feel a bit anxious about the whole thing but last week's was particularly good and as was the pat cummins interview from last year i forgot how funny he was uh, that day not that i didn't think he's a funny guy but more that he was on top form when we spoke to him uh, in derby last year so if you want to revisit our chat with pat and our story time musings uh, you can find that in the feed from last weekend we'll do it all again uh, next weekend and, and jeff we're very grateful to a lot of people for uh, keeping the show on the road each week the final word is Produced by Bad Producer Productions, edited by Dave Collins, and put out by Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards at 
that aforementioned production company each week. Uh, everybody who supports the show on Patreon makes it possible to keep it going uh, we in the way you. that we're doing twice a week. Uh, we appreciate you. We see you. We are you, really. We're all we're all one organism, aren't we? We're all just expressions of energy in one conglomerate mass. Uh, and, and everybody who rates and reviews the show on various uh, platforms or sends it around to their friends, we appreciate you too. I just want to uh, put another shout out for the Night Watchmen. Uh, they've done a really good thing with this Australian edition so if you've been kind of on the on the brink of getting involved with night watchman in the past this is a very very good time to have a look uh, you'll see all that information in the show notes and thanks to see by super you know i don't think we thank them enough sometimes because uh, without them uh, laying a foundation under what we're doing uh, it would be very tough for us to have a podcast and the fact that we've got Cbus and and of course these wonderful uh, patrons of ours um, it, it has made such a huge difference over the last six months and we've had perhaps our most productive period ever of recording which is strange considering it's been a middle of a pandemic and and guests haven't been as easy to come by but it's been great as well it's the final word jeff lemon adam collins will be back for story time on the weekend and for our weekly show next week with more tales of daring do and wonder from the cricketing world until then stay safe bye